How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem when a certain yuppie walks up to him with a question. The rich young ruler, the yuppie, Jesus blows him off with a quick retort about the commandments. Oh, you know what the commandments say, do those. And and the rich young man, he won't relent. He says, look, I know all the rules because I've been following all the rules since I was a kid. What else must I do? And Jesus says, because I love you, you should sell all of your possessions. Give all the proceeds to the poor and then you may follow me. The disciples look on at this scene as, and they watch as this self-professed faithful adherent to the law walks away, Scripture says, grieved. Grieved in his heart because he had many possessions. Jesus and the rich young ruler. To uh, my reading of Scripture, this is the only time in the Bible that Jesus invites someone to discipleship and they turn him down. Every other time Jesus says, follow me, they do it but not this one. If you want to follow me, sell all your possessions, give the proceeds to the poor. And he walks away grieved because he has many possessions. What strikes you about this story? Have you ever heard it before? I hope you have. We like to drag it out every fall during stewardship season. Oh, we're possessed by our possessions. Why don't you go sell some of your things and give the money not to the poor, give it to the church. We'll give it to the poor. You ever heard that before? I mean, I think we have a hard time with this. We like Jesus. Jesus is fine. We know Jesus loves us, but Jesus wants us to sell all of our stuff. I don't like that Jesus. But actually, I think there's something more striking in this story than the fact that Jesus tells us to sell our possessions. Something that staggers me, leaves me wondering and scratching my head, what is going on? It's this young ruler that he claims to have followed all of the commandments since he was a young boy. All of them, not just the original 10, which, by the way, are hard enough to keep. You know how many rules there are? 613. And I've kept them all, Jesus. I'd like to read you a sampling of those 613 rules. You shall not embarrass other people. You shall never, ever, ever bear a grudge. You shall not imitate the customs of other people. You shall not wear a garment of more than one material. You shall never shave your beard. And you must not ever use a tree as a sacred pole. You ever heard that one before? It's Deuteronomy. You know what it means? No more Christmas trees. Sacred poles. We'll save that for Advent. We'll come back to that one, all right? 613 laws in the Old Testament. Why? Why do we have all these rules? Why does God give them to us? If you ask the rich young ruler... I think he has this presumption that God gives us the rules so we follow the rules, and if we follow the rules, we get in through the pearly gates. I think that's what most of us think they're there for. We follow the rules, we follow the law, we get to get through the pearly gates. But according to Jesus and Paul, that's oddly enough not why God gives them to us. They're not rules to regulate our behavior. 
though not a code of conduct that we must all follow, according to Jesus and Paul, the law exists to accuse us. It's not practical, it's actually theological. The law reveals to us the total righteousness we require to stand blameless before the throne of God, a total righteousness that not one of us can ever have, no matter how hard we try and no matter what we do. Because if, and this is a tremendously big if, even if, like the rich young ruler, we somehow were able to keep all 613 commandments, Jesus won't let it stay there. He says, oh, you've done all of them? I've got another one for you. Why don't you sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you can follow me? And this isn't the only time Jesus does that. During the Sermon on the Mount, he has all these rules handed down to Moses at Sinai, and he takes every one of them and he ratchets it up. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. I say if you're angry, you're a murderer. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. I say if your eye wanders and lingers too long, guess what? You cheated on your spouse. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor. It's easy to love your neighbor. Why don't you try to love your enemies? He takes every one of these laws and he just keeps ratcheting them up more and more. The righteousness we require to acquire the kingdom is not within our grasp or our abilities. And, sadly, there's no A for effort in the kingdom of God. It's not, oh, you did 600 out of 613? You get an A minus. No. Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, it's bad enough that we tend to measure ourselves against other people, particularly in the church, where we tell stories about Dr. King and Mother Teresa and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and then we leave church feeling, I have to be like that? It's another thing entirely when, says, when Jesus says, you want to know what kind of righteousness you have to have? You have to be like God. How's that going for you, by the way? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's impossible. Impossible. And yet, even though Jesus has this interaction with the yuppie, even though he goes back and forth about the law and what we're supposed to be doing, even though he ratchets it up, the early church, it still struggles with what the law is, what it's for, what it does. And it's into this conundrum that Paul writes Romans chapter 10. This chapter... Uh, what Judy just read for us is so dense with Old Testament references, you would need a concordance to figure out all the things that Paul is trying to talk about. He goes back and forth with talk of obedience, fidelity, ascension, dissension. It can leave us more confused than it leaves us assured. In the end, he's trying to demonstrate the difference between the righteousness of rules and the righteousness of faith. He's trying to help us understand the distinction between the law and the gospel. And it can sound a little abstract. We don't really use the word righteousness except when we're in church on Sundays. But we are all concerned with it. We just use different words. We all want to be right. We all think we're right. And by thinking we're right, it means everybody else is wrong. We're obsessed with rightness. We like to have all these lines in the sand about who's politically right, who's theologically right, who's economically right. We love to do this all the time. And to that venture, Paul says, we're wasting our time. Getting it right won't save us because like the rich young ruler, we can't be right and we won't be right. But God's rightness, God's righteousness through Christ is what saves us. 
right before what Judy read, Paul says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who trusts God. In other words, we don't have to climb the mountain of good works and perfect morality in order to get to heaven because heaven has already come down to us. And Paul keeps going. He says, the word is near us, so near us it's on our lips, it's in our hearts. He says, Jesus is already here. And guess what? You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. But Jesus came just for you. But how are we supposed to know what faithfulness faithfulness looks like? Don't we want to be the one church that's right out of 500? How do we know what's right? How do we know what righteousness looks like? Paul says righteousness looks like Jesus. Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord, who does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Faithfulness, Paul says, looks like a pair of open hands, not clenched fists, open hands, ready to receive the gift. Faithfulness, righteousness, is like an invitation that we don't deserve to the story of God's salvation for the world. And Paul knows that the early church is struggling with this, about what the rules are, what do you have to do, who's in, who's out. He knows in some way that we're still struggling with it today, and that's why there's a good word from Scripture. It's not about adopting new laws about what you have to do or what you must avoid. It's not about doing the right things. Instead, Paul is trying to get the Romans and us to trust the work that's done through Christ because God can always do more than we can. God can always do more than we can. That's why Paul says there's no longer any distinction between the Jew and the Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all. taken the church a long time to figure this all out. We're still figuring it all out. What the rules are, who's right, who's wrong. Paul struggled with it. Martin Luther struggled with it. Protestant reformer Martin Luther. He of the Lutheran denomination. Luther said that when God speaks, God usually speaks just two words. One of those words is law, and the other word is gospel. Every other word that God says can fit in one of those two. Law and gospel. And Luther says, for us, Christians, the most important task we have is being able to distinguish between God's two words. What's a law and what's the gospel? We have to know them individually for what they are and why why God gives them to us. Because in most places, we like one over the other. In some churches, it's all about the law. The only word we care about is law. We want to know what's right, what's wrong. We want to know what people have done or left undone. And if we're obsessed with the law, that's the only word we know, then we're always going to walk away from Jesus like the rich young ruler grieved because we're not going to do all of it. That kind of faith, a faith only of the law, it turns God into a ledger keeper, that God's somewhere up there holding a sheet of paper and watching every... Chelsea, I saw that. All right. Oh, Louise. Good job, Louise. You get a tick in the positive today. Hal. Hal, you're laughing. We get a tick in the neck. You don't laugh in church. Don't you know it says that in the Bible? That's what it is. If the law is the only thing we care about, then God is holding a magnifying glass over every little thing we do. And you know what that turns us into? Our own ledger keepers. We start to keep lists about what other people do or what they leave undone. We decide, oh, I'm right and they're wrong and I'm going to keep a mental note of it. If all we care about is the law, that's what happens to us. 
In short, the law says, do this and do this and do this, and it's never, ever done. The law cannot and will not make us good Christians, but it will do something, you know? It will make us pretty good hypocrites. That's another church sign I saw not too long ago. The church is not full of hypocrites. There's always room for another. The law cannot and will not make us good Christians, but it will make us pretty good hypocrites. And yet at the same time, if the only word we care about is gospel, if we get rid of law and we only care about gospel, we run the risk of making the good news into some sort of cliche. I love to tell people how much God loves them, but love doesn't really mean much unless you know you don't deserve it. Love is just an abstraction if it comes without a cost. The law helps us to see that we don't deserve God's love. God has told us 613 times what to do, and we don't do it. And yet, God's love for us makes it so profound. But we can't know the power of the gospel unless we know the law. But there's an alternative, a somehow worse alternative, and that's when we take these two distinct words and we combine them. A friend of mine calls it the gospel. When we stick the law with the gospel, it turns into the gospel. It's insidious, a little subtle when you hear the gospel, when you confuse those two words together. It's like coming to church on a Sunday and you hear, yes, yes, Jesus loves you just the way you are, but you have to do X and Y and Z if you want God to keep loving you. God made you just the way you are, but we need you to start giving more money to the church. We need you to start coming to small groups. We need you to start voting better. We need you to care about the environment. The gospel is when you put them all together. The gospel takes amazing grace and makes it exhausting grace. Or to put it another way, in the kingdom of heaven, there are no buts. But we need both. We need the law and we need the gospel. We need both because the law drives us to the gospel. Because rather than standing on our presumed goodness that we've done all the right things, the law brings us to our knees with outstretched hands waiting to receive God's mercy. Paul goes on and on in this section of chapter 10 with all these references to the Mosaic Law from the Old Testament, talking about uh, ascension and descension, all this stuff about how the word is near us. And then... Paul says faith comes. Faith is what saves us. And faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes from the preaching of Christ. Now, I'm not sure why Jesus decided to use preachers to share the good news. Have you ever known any preachers? I know one. He's pretty selfish. He's not a great guy. He's okay. Doesn't pray as much as he should doesn't try to help others as much as he should. Preachers are like lay people. Sinners. Sometimes scoundrels. But the gift of preaching is that preaching is never really what the preacher does. It's what God does through the preacher. Paul says the word of faith is so close to you right now you can't even tell because it's inside of you. And it's not because of anything you've done and it's certainly not because of anything I've done except for the fact that Paul says that God is pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who trust. 
It somehow delights God that people dress up like this and talk about Jesus for 15 minutes or less on a Sunday morning. Because somehow through the foolishness of preachers, faith enters the world. And wonder of wonders, God does this without distinction. God doesn't care how good we are or bad we are before giving us the gift of faith. Which means I don't have to be Karl Barth. You don't have to be Mother Teresa. You don't even have to be Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And guess what? You don't even have to be Jesus, thank God. The only thing you have to be is exactly who you are. You just have to be you. And listen, for the law and the gospel, the two words that God speaks, reject the gospel because... The good news isn't good news if it comes with strings attached. If the message leaves us exhausted, then it runs contrary to the one who says, bring me your burdens and I will give you rest. If we have to earn our salvation, then bad news, heaven is going to be empty. You know, after the rich young ruler walks away grieved because of his many possessions, The disciples, they've seen this whole thing. And one of them, probably Peter, raises his hand and says, all right, Jesus, I got another question. I know I've already asked about a thousand, but I got another one. He said that he did all the law, that he had followed all the rules. So if if he isn't saved, then who is? I mean, if this guy who's basically perfect, if he isn't saved, then what hope is there for the rest of us? It sounds impossible. You know what Jesus says? For humans, it is impossible. But for God, nothing is impossible. We can't save ourselves. But wonders of wonders, Jesus saves us. I offer this name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen.